Good morning, everyone. Uh, If you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. The last few weeks, we've been looking at Jonah chapter 1. We took two weeks to go through that, and this week, we are going to double-time it, and we are going to study Jonah chapters 2 and 3. So while you're turning there, I want to tell you about a basketball coach that I had growing up, Coach Moon. And Coach Moon had a rule that we all had to follow. And the rule was that during practice, if we were scrimmaging against one another, offense versus defense, five on five, uh, he had a rule that if the offensive player who was holding the ball, if he ever saw any of the defensive players not looking at him, if this guy could see the back of a defender's head, then that offensive player had to stop the play and he had to rear back and throw the ball as hard as he could at the person who wasn't looking at him. And, and the, the point was that as a defender, you always had to be able to see two things. You always had to be able to see your man and the ball. Those are the, the most important things. And so if this guy could see the back of your head, you couldn't see him and you were letting your team down. And so that could not be tolerated. And so as a a punishment, you you were going to get hit, hopefully in the back of the head with the ball. Hopefully you didn't turn around at the last minute and take it in the face. We we all got a few bloody noses from that. Uh, But but the the reason behind this rule is that uh, Coach Moon, he was using a corrective punishment. And so the defender was doing something wrong and it was a punishment, you know, if you get hit after you do something bad, you're going to learn not to do that again. But, but the, it wasn't punishment for punishment's sake. It wasn't just trying to be mean or to be cruel. It was to accomplish a purpose. It was to be corrective. It was to teach you to be, always be able to see the two most important things so that next time you wouldn't be letting your team down. It was a corrective punishment. Well, This week in in Jonah chapter 2, we are seeing God do something similar to Jonah. God is punishing Jonah, judging Jonah, but in a corrective way. So just as a bit of a recap, God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh and to uh, preach uh, the message that God had given him to the Ninevites. But because Nineveh was the enemy of Israel... Jonah hated them so much, he didn't want to give the grace of God a chance to to break through, and so Jonah ran the opposite way. And because of his disobedience, God disciplined Jonah. He sent a storm. This storm almost capsized the boat. It It almost cost the lives of everybody on board, but eventually Jonah was thrown out, and he sank to the bottom of the sea, and we see in, in chapter 2, in you know, verse 5, that the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. Like this was a dire situation for Jonah. And, and God was punishing Jonah. It got so bad that the fish came along and ate Jonah. And so Jonah said, okay, I refused God's call, I disobeyed God, and now I'm sitting in the fish, in the, in the belly of a fish, just getting dissolved by its stomach acid. And I think this is a really poignant picture 
for us for what disobedience to the Lord looks like. This is what happens when we sin against the Lord. And I think that should be a bit of a warning and a reminder to us. I think there's a temptation that we face on this side of the cross to to think, I can presume upon the grace of God, I can presume upon the faithfulness and the mercy of God, and I can do whatever I want because I know that eventually he's going to forgive me. And, and, you know, there are so many problems with that. To presume upon the grace of God shows you probably don't understand the grace of God in the first place, but I, I think it is... God's grace to us to reveal his character to show that our sin has consequences. It it has consequences on Jonah. That's how he ended up here in the first place. But our sin also has consequences on those around us. Just think of what happened to the sailors last week. They, They almost lost everything because of Jonah's sin. So, so this, this wasn't final judgment, this wasn't judgment day, but we do see that there are consequences for our actions. Paul said in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So I, I think one way to view Jonah's situation where he currently sits is with a view of judgment and punishment. But I think if we looked at it from a different perspective, if we kept looking at this situation, we also might be able to see it a little differently. If you keep looking at God's judgments on Jonah, you also see them as God's grace to Jonah. God had called Jonah to go this way, and Jonah went the other way. And God could have let him go. God did not need Jonah. There were better people for the mission. There was nothing in God that said, I need that guy. So God could have just let Jonah continue in his rebellion and in his disobedience. But but if you think about it, the storm actually stopped Jonah from going further in his disobedience. It caused him to be thrown out right there. It, you know, stopped him running away, and it turned him around. And, and if you think about, you know, getting eaten by the fish, you know, I'm sure it's not fun to get eaten by a fish, but if that fish hadn't have come along, you know, we saw where Jonah was at the bottom of the ocean with the weeds wrapped around his neck. So while getting eaten by the fish was not a pleasant experience, It was actually a a vessel of deliverance. It was a vessel of salvation. It was like an underwater life raft for Jonah. And so God's judgments were actually God's graces to Jonah. God was pursuing Jonah and loving him through these hard things. You know, also my basketball coach, he would yell at me a lot. And um, it didn't feel good to get yelled at. You know, that hurt in the moment. But what would have been a lot worse was if he had stopped yelling. You know, maybe you've heard that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy. And so if, you know, my coach had seen me doing something wrong, if he had just not said anything, that would have meant that he had given up on me. 
He didn't think that he could help me. He thought that I was a lost cause. But the fact that he was yelling, that showed that he actually cared. And so, so the opposite of love isn't hate. It's apathy. And so God was loving Jonah through these punishments. He was pursuing Jonah. He was trying to bring him back. And I think that's the most beautiful thing about God's judgments is that they are always meant to bring us back. They are always meant to bring us to repentance. I think Hebrews 12 says this really well. All the Hebrews is just talking about how we should view the Lord's discipline of us. And he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. When God disciplines you, he is treating you like a son. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I think that shows us that we need to view the discipline of the Lord as him actually being a loving father. My, my pastor back in Birmingham, I got so sick of hearing him say this. He said it all the time, but it's really true. He said that whenever he, whenever he would discipline his kids, he would discipline them, and then he would say, I'm disciplining, disciplining you because I love you and because I don't want other people to hate you. You discipline because you love. And I think we need to see that God's discipline is never punitive. It's always redemptive. It is never meant to be cruel or to be mean. It is always meant to prick our consciences, to show us the error of our ways and to show that God's way is better. It is meant to transform us, to redeem us, and to bring us back. And notice the great lengths that God is willing to go to to bring his children back. Jonah said in verse 3, You cast me into the deep. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. This was an active act of God. Those waves, that fish, all of these circumstances were sent by God to bring Jonah back. We see that God is a missional God. He is a pursuing God. He is the God who will run after the sheep who has run away. And so basically, all that Jonah chapter 2 is, Jonah's prayer is, as he is inside the belly of the fish, that is giving us an inside look into what the redemptive, transformative power of God can do when it gets a hold of you. And if you read chapter 2, you can notice the, the stark change in Jonah's vocabulary and in, in, in his identity. Last week in chapter 1, in verse 9, you know, once the, they, they had, uh, the sailors were interrogating Jonah, they were asking him all of these identity questions, and Jonah led with, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. So, so his nation, his country, his ethnicity, that was what was most important to Jonah. That was his idol. But after he's been disciplined by the Lord, we get to see that in his prayer that that idolatry has been beaten out of him. It is nowhere to be seen. He's not calling out, oh, Israel, or, you know, oh, Jeroboam, king of Israel, you know, rally the troops, send the horses, send the chariots, come and save me. He is not counting on his country here. That is not his foundational identity. In verses 8 through 10, we see Jonah prayed, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. 
But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God had done an incredible, transforming, redeeming work in Jonah. Now he could rightly say with all of his heart, salvation belongs to the Lord. So after three days, at the end of chapter two, we said that God, you know, spoke to the fish and the fish vomited him up. And because of the huge transformation that had happened in Jonah, I bet that fish thought he tastes different this time. He tastes different coming out than he did going in. That is not the same guy. And then we get to chapter three. This is Jonah 2.0. This is the new and improved Jonah. And we see that chapter 3 basically starts the book over again. It starts the exact same way that chapter 1 did. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So so this is just a copy-paste of chapter 1. And given what we saw happen in chapter 2, the new and improved Jonah, the repentant Jonah, we should expect very different results from Jonah in his obedience to God's call. And so pick up with me. It's in uh, verse 3, about midway through. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's stop there. Knowing what had just happened to Jonah in the belly of the fish, knowing the repentance and the transformation and everything that the Lord had been doing in Jonah's heart, this should cause like a turntable screeching moment for us. So God had finally gotten a hold of Jonah, and Jonah finally went. It looked like he had turned the corner. He was obeying the Lord. He was committed to God's mission. And though Nineveh was three days across, Jonah only went one day into the city. He just kind of took a, a few steps in. And look at, look at what Jonah tried to pass off for a sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That would be like if God had called Jonah to come here to Redemption Park or to call us to repentance. And he opened the door, didn't even come up to the pulpit, just opened the door with one foot in and one foot out and said, Yet 40 days, park will be overthrown, church dismissed, give them heaven. I didn't hear anything about the character of God. I didn't hear anything about, okay, I'm going to be judged. Now what? How do I repent? Like, you just, you gave me no hope. Jonah basically tried to preach these people into hell. And so when we see just the the disconnect between chapter 2, where this is God doing such a transforming work in Jonah, and then in chapter 3, I think we got to ask Jonah, what, what happened? I, I thought you got it. Why, why are you falling back into the same sin that you had before? And Jonah does deserve some condemnation. He, he is absolutely at fault for his lackluster gospel efforts. But I also think that in some sense, Jonah deserves some commendation. It would be easy to look at Jonah and say, you went one day, you preached a one-sentence sermon. Like, how could you? That was really, really bad. Uh, 
each week when Mark and I get together to talk through the text and talk through the sermon, one of the questions that we ask of the text is, how can this passage help instill a gospel culture here at Redemption Parker? How can what we see here help us to soften our hearts, to be more gracious with one another, to be more encouraging with one another, and to help us recognize the work that the Lord is already doing in our lives. I think it's just our our natural tendency to see people where they are and compare that to where they should be, and all we can see is the space that they have left to go. So this would be saying, Jonah, you were supposed to go three days, you went one day, why didn't you do more? And, and, And there's something to that, but I think one of the ways that we can help instill a gospel culture is to celebrate baby steps. You know, we, we can't expect spiritual toddlers to act like spiritual adults. They're not going to get there in one week. And so you might be thinking, you know, I am the biggest introvert in the room, which I, I do think I am. I don't know if it's possible for somebody else to be a bigger introvert. So maybe we shouldn't have you being the main greeter at the door every Sunday, but maybe you can make a commitment that to help instill a gospel culture, to help, feel, help people feel welcome, I'm just going to introduce myself to one new person every single week. Or if the idea of being on mission, of evangelizing, of leaving your friends and family and leaving what you know and what you're comfortable with, if that is just a foreign concept to you, you know, maybe you don't have to start by going on a trip to Italy. Maybe just say, I'm just going to invite my neighbor over for dinner. I'm just going to build a relationship with them, and I'm just going to share the gospel here. Or, or maybe if, if church membership just is, is a weird idea to you, you know, that you belong to a church and a church belongs to you, that's just like diving too much into the deep end. Maybe just go into the shallow end and go to a gospel community. I, I think a lot of times what looks like a baby step from the outside is actually a giant leap of faith for the person who's actually doing it. And I think that a way that we can help instill a gospel culture is by celebrating those baby steps. Recognize that we were that baby once too. We didn't get to where we are right now. We weren't, you know, born mature. It took time and it took people coming alongside of us and encouraging us, even however small that growth was. So I I think that's something that we as a church can grow in in celebrating the small acts and graces of God in each other's lives. And so in response to Jonah's kind of lackluster but still growing in grace, growing in progress effort, in verse 5 we get to see how Nineveh responded. And the people believed God. That should be another screeching moment. Jonah, you gave a lackluster effort. You preached a one-sentence sermon, and what happened? Again, revival broke out. We see that they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So last week we talked about how there are three major themes in the book of Jonah. And here we get to see one of them is that whenever Jonah comes into contact with a non-Israelite, whenever he comes into contact with a pagan, they always look great. And he's the one who walks away looking like a fool. Revival broke out. And what we see is that God was doing to Nineveh the same thing that he had done to Jonah, just in a different way. God had used judgment in order to transform Jonah. And in a slightly different way, we see that God was using judgment and calling people to repentance to transform Nineveh. It looked like judgment, but it was actually grace. So Jonah said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He implied that judgment is coming. And what that did is it caused the Ninevites to think, Maybe there is something wrong with us. Maybe there is something wrong with how we are acting as a culture. Maybe we do need to repent. And and preaching judgment and calling for repentance and doing that in our relationships with unbelievers, those have never been popular things. It's not a popular thing now. Uh, Apparently there's a new book It may have already come out, I can't remember. It's called uh, Girl, Stop Apologizing. And it's basically, you know, one of those like Christian coffee table books. And the idea behind it is that the way that you live your best life is when you realize that the problems aren't with you, they're with everybody else, they're with the world. And so the way that you can become the best you is if you just stop apologizing and just be who you are. Our, our own Jen Oshman is, uh, thankfully does some good pastoral defense and is willing to read some really bad books uh, to just kind of make us aware of some of these things. And she wrote a review of this book, Girl, Stop Apologizing, and basically said that is the exact opposite of what the gospel calls us to do. The gospel does not say, you're good enough. You can save yourself. You don't have to change anything. It doesn't say you are okay in the sight of God. The gospel says you're not okay. The gospel says you are broken, you are a sinner, and you stand in front of an infinitely holy God and that you are deserving of his judgment. When John the Baptist started his ministry in Matthew 3, do you remember what the first words out of his mouth were? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus, when he started his ministry in Matthew 5, he just copied John. He said the exact same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent because you're not okay. You don't need to stop apologizing. You need to start apologizing. The gospel life, the Christian life begins when you come to the end of yourself and realizing that you are the problem and that you are in need of the grace of God to redeem you. And and it sounds cruel and it sounds 
judgy to call someone to repentance to say that you are not okay. But we have to remember that God's discipline is always meant to be redemptive. Calling someone to repent is the most loving thing that you can do for them. So, you know, does that mean that we need to go out and join the Westboro Baptists? No, it doesn't. Thank you. I think they have forgotten that it is the message of the gospel that is offensive, not the messenger. And so we are called to present the gospel in a very winsome and attractive and loving way. And so what we see is this picture of genuine repentance by Nineveh because they have been confronted with their own sin. And we see that Nineveh came to a screeching halt. You know, the king got off of his throne. He realized that there was a higher power. He, you know, ripped his clothes. He put on sackcloth and and he called for citywide repentance. No one could eat or drink. This was a citywide fast. Life in Nineveh stopped for three days. And, And I think we can learn a lot from their example of repentance. When was the last time that you were so broken of your sin that you just couldn't go on? You knew that today cannot be just another day. There is some serious soul work that I need to do. And and yes, I, I think that kind of thing can be abused to say, you know, I'm just going to look to my external expressions, you know, if I cried enough or said I'm sorry enough or, you know, just wrote a bigger check to the church, you know, that'll atone for my bigger sins this week. I think that kind of judging your repentance based on your external uh, response, yeah, that, that can be abused. Um, but, but there is something to say for genuine repentance leads to real change. I think it's kind of similar to what James said in chapter 2 that uh, faith without works is dead. And so it's faith and faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Faith expresses itself through good work. Like good work is the outward expression of faith. It doesn't save you, but it is always accompanied by that faith. I think similarly, genuine repentance manifests itself externally. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7 that godly repentance produces a sorrow that leads to salvation. I I think just the point I'm trying to get across is that if your repentance looks like a quick two-second prayer of, God, forgive me, I'm so sorry, thank you for your grace, amen, I, I really think that's just presuming on the grace of the Lord. That's not doing the soul work and calling on God for your forgiveness and realizing how desperately you need him. So it's, it's surprising that Nineveh repented in the way that they did. They, they had very little knowledge about the character of God, and it was a thorough repentance. It was citywide. But, but there's something else that is very surprising about their repentance. There's something that makes it even more impressive. So after all all of the repentance, after the three days, uh, we're going to see the king say something in verse 9. And and just pay attention to the uncertainty in his words. After they had repented, he said, who knows? God may turn and relent 
He may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Jonah hadn't told them about the character of God. Nineveh didn't know about God's plan to eventually send the promised one, to send the Messiah to atone for the sins of the world. They, They didn't know any of that. So they just repented hoping. You know, 50-50 shot. God might forgive us or he might not. He, he might still wipe us off the face of the map. We don't know. And, and to close, let me ask you this question. If the Ninevites could repent as completely and as thoroughly as they did with such a uh, with such little understanding of the character of God, then how much more thoroughly and how much more confidently can you and I repent? Because on this side of the cross, we don't have to guess if God is going to make a way for us to be saved. We don't have to guess if our sins are going to be dealt with. We don't have to say, God, I'm so sorry. I repent of everything that I've done, but I don't know if you're going to make a way for me. On this side of the cross, where we stand at this point in redemptive history, we know that God has sent his son, that he has sent Jesus in the flesh. Jesus came and he lived among us and he took our sin upon himself and he went to the cross and he said, Father, pour that judgment that they deserve, pour it on me. I will take it. And so we don't have to guess. We don't have to repent hoping that the Lord will forgive us. We can repent knowing. Romans says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so to the unbeliever in the room who's maybe thinking, I've done too much. My my sin is, you know, too much to be forgiven. Know that the work that Christ did on the cross was sufficient. You don't have to wonder or guess. You can know. Same thing, you know, if it's not your first time looking to Jesus, if it's the millionth time, God is not going to get tired of forgiving you. His grace is inexhaustible. So so to everyone in the room, believer and unbeliever alike, look to the cross. See Jesus. See his blood pouring down and his, his body being ripped apart. See the judgment of God coming on him and see how Christ used the worst moment in all of human history to redeem it for our salvation. Look to the cross and repent and believe. Let me pray that the Lord would give us grace to do these things. Lord, we do praise you for who you are and for all of the graces that you show to us, even the severe ones. We ask that you would continue to call us back to yourself, continue to show us the sinful nature of our hearts, reveal in us our desperate need for you. Do it by your word, do it by your church, do it through our singing, do it through all the means of grace that you have given us. Continue to form us more into the image of Jesus. We, we praise you and we thank you for the work that you have done on the cross and making a way for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.